0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: I'm Jenna Ellis, and welcome to Just the Truth Podcast, sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find them at thomasmoresociety.org. The United States Supreme Court has decided to hear its first abortion case this term. This means it will be the first case with all three of President Trump's appointees on the bench. This is a significant development in the pro-life movement across the country to overturn Roe versus Wade and recognize the truth that the Constitution protects life at every stage from conception to natural death. The leftists, of course, say that women have a so-called right to abortion, but that is completely false. It's a talking point that completely misconstrues the truth about Roe v. Wade and its progeny, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It should be obvious to anyone who actually reads the Constitution's text that rights do not come from the Constitution. They come from God our Creator. But neither Roe nor its progeny found a so-called right to abortion in the Constitution anyway. These abortion cases didn't even suggest this, but rather, the court found that the right to privacy covers some abortions in some circumstances. Since these opinions, the court has sought to balance the right to privacy versus the state's compelling interest in protecting human life. This was established as the Undue Burden Test in Casey. This was judicial finessing to cover up the inherent incongruency of these opinions with the Constitution. Casey and Roe and other social issue issue decisions were about finding things that aren't in the Constitution to advance a specific policy agenda rather than faithfully applying the law. These cases are about imposing the opinion and preferences of a majority of activist judges over the rule of law. So, in this new case from Mississippi, the Supreme Court limited the case to this question, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. This question and the Supreme Court's opinion will strike at the very core of Roe and Casey and will be the most important case on life in three decades, if the justices rule correctly. And in case you're wondering, no, the so-called right to abortion is not the law of the land. Many states are exercising their legislative power to diminish the ability of women to legally kill their unborn children, and the Supreme Court can absolutely overturn Roe, and it should. So joining me now to discuss this and much more is John Solomon, the editor-in-chief of Just the News. Hi, John. Great to see you. Good to be with you. All right. So the Big new day. Supreme Court uh, case, they're finally taking it up. We yeah. thought this would probably happen. So what's the word from uh, the Supreme well, Court? Well, this is
2: really going to define the future of, of abortion rights. Uh, that's certainly the term that the Planned Parenthood folks use. But the yeah. issue of abortion is going to be decided by this case. And the, the question is, can Mississippi set a, uh, a limit that abortions after, I believe, 15 weeks uh, can't uh, will be uh, right. uh, outlawed? Uh, there's a judge that's ruled against them. It's worked its way through the appellate process. Now the Supreme Court with three Trump justices and theoretically a 6-3 majority of conservatives. Uh, we never know about Roberts. He's in and out. Theoretically is the key uh, word there. Uh, that is important. <laughs> yes. But uh, they're going to be able to take a look at it. I think this is probably the, uh, the most significant case uh, in about 40 years. I mean, there's almost certainty that uh, everything is going to get reevaluated in Roe v Wade is this. I think it opens the door for that reevaluation. Where they come down, nobody knows. Next step are arguments, so we'll have to see where it goes.
1: Yeah, well, we'll be uh, definitely keeping tabs on this, and I know you'll do some great reporting at uh, Just the News for all of this. And sure. speaking of great reporting, um, you also had some other things happen over the weekend. We did. So what's going on? We
2: did. A very important letter yesterday from Devin Nunez, a ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, former chairman, the man who unraveled the Russia collusion uh, false narrative. He sent a letter to Joe Biden and to Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, saying they have evidence, Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee have evidence, that the Intelligence Committee suppressed dissent among its ranks. It's analysts who questioned the early claims that the virus, the coronavirus, had come from the wild, had evolved from from nature. Uh, They believe that it likely emanated from a bad experiment in, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. It escaped the lab in an accident, They were silenced for a long period of time. This is very significant because during Russia collusion, early on, a lot of people saying there's no collusion here. This is Russian disinformation. They were silenced as well. So the latest example of potential politicalization in the intelligence community, and Devin Nunez once again trying to scratch at this and get uh, the powers to be, the focus on this. How did we get this wrong? A year ago, we're saying, absolutely, no doubt it came from the wild. President Trump saying, I don't think so. It's not what I'm hearing. Now the Biden administration has acknowledged that it's likely or one of the two most likely scenarios that it did uh, come from a lab accident. Big evolution. How did the intelligence community get that wrong? How did they suppress it during the whole time President Trump was in office?
1: Mm, well, I mean, that's very interesting that it would come out now after the 2020 election think and- <laughs> of all the
2: things that have come out since the election i mean that we found out that the russia uh, bounties on uh, u.s soldiers was a bogus after the election many of the key revelations about russia and uh uh hunter Biden after the election uh the intelligence community these permanent bureaucracies have been able to suppress a lot of information throughout the entire presidency of donald trump and now the truth is coming to light a little late for those who uh, supported president trump Uh, But it reminds us that there's this entire entity in government that controls the flow of information, often not at the will of the American people.
1: Yeah, and and I think this is something that the American people are just so frustrated about because it seems like we never get an accurate answer. We only get a politicized answer. And yeah. so is there any discussion of uh, Joe Biden actually talking to China about this? I mean, we know that he's uh, really favorable much more than President Trump was. So where would you see this going? Listen,
2: his, his secretary of state, Antony Blinken, and his director of national intelligence have both now said there are only two viable theories about where the COVID virus came from. It either evolved in nature in an unusual way or it, it came from a lab accident, most likely from Wuhan. That puts them in a position to go head to head with China. Now, will they do it? We don't know. Uh, the Biden family has a lot of stake in China but uh, they've at least gone on record for the first time affirming what President Trump was trying to say all last year, often getting drowned out by the mainstream media. Mm-hmm.
1: President Trump has just always proven right. Funny how that happens, And think right? of all the whipsaws. <laughs> if you're in
2: American public, your head's been going like this for the last couple of years because things keep whipsawing. The truth keeps turning on its head.
1: Yeah, well, here we like to speak just the truth, and you Amen. always do on Just the News. So thanks so much, John. we'll be right back to talk more on Just the Truth. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. That's dot slash wondery. Continuing the conversation now with my good friend Tom Fitton, who is the president of Judicial Watch. So, Tom, so much to talk about tonight, and thanks so much for joining me. I want to first get uh, your reaction to the Supreme Court taking up the abortion case. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff in uh, the pro-life area we could talk about, but uh, do you think that this will have any impact on the Democrats now calling for court packing? I mean, we saw how much Chuck Schumer last year in the midst of the last abortion-related case was literally threatening the justice from the steps of the Supreme Court. So how is this going to impact the politics?
3: Yeah, I think it's going to increase calls for court packing from the radical left. They've been tamped down a little bit on this issue. They pushed it initially. Uh, The Democratic leadership uh, basically told them to cool their heels. They didn't want to move forward with it. And this is going to give them another cudgel to hit with uh, Schumer and Pelosi with uh, to push this court packing scheme forward, which I think would destroy... Our constitutional system. Uh, it's good news for the rule of law that there's another opportunity for the Supreme Court to fix Roe versus Wade, which was the antithesis of constitutional government. Uh, but uh, the left, because they see this threat to their uh, power grab through the courts, are going to be further emboldened to, in my view, um, upend independent, the independent judiciary uh, under our constitutional system with this court packing scheme.
1: Yeah, so if they decide to do this, I mean, from a judicial watch perspective, um, what can regular citizens do in the face of uh, whatever Biden's commission decides to propose? We know that court packing will likely be part of that uh, commission analysis and other things uh, legislatively, but I mean, are are there any sorts of lawsuits or any other uh, kind of combating this that uh, your organization has looked at?
3: Well, I don't think it's illegal to increase the size of the Supreme Court. Uh, So it may not be a a statutory fight or a constitutional fight. To me, in many ways, it's a political fight. So anyone watching this has got to let their elected representatives in both the House and the Senate, and frankly call the White House, and let them know what you think about this scheme to upend the rule of law. It would essentially turn the Supreme Court uh, in—it's already too politicized, but the court packing, so folks understand this— would expand the size of the Supreme Court by the Democratic left, so they get their justices. Then the Republicans would come in, expand it further to get their justices, and by before you know it, the Supreme Court would be be completely blown up and be just like another House of Representatives, and uh, we know how well the House of Representatives governs. Would you want them making decisions about your rights, uh, as the courts are supposed to do, Uh, That's where this goes if we uh, go with court packing. And, you know, the most famous uh, example of court packing in recent memory isn't FDR. It's Hugo Chavez. So that way lies chaos in Venezuela as opposed to constitutional Republican form of government, which we currently have.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and we're going the the socialist route and other things uh, like Venezuela in a really, really rapid pace, which is absolutely terrible. But you know, one of my favorite tweets, and I forget who tweeted this, uh, in the midst of court packing, that said, you know, the year is uh, 20, you know, 72, and the Supreme Court is now 2,317 members. <laughs> it's like you know this exaggeration of exactly what you're talking about. And you know, as we look at uh, the the landscape now and the current Supreme. Court, court composition. Uh, What's your view of the court actually being conservative now? I mean, we say 6-3 majority. Um, I I tend to not really put Roberts in that category at all. I think it's at best maybe a 5-4. But um, for things beyond even just the life issue, but looking at some of the other things that the court, the newly uh, composed court, is going to have to look at over the next coming years, uh, what's your thought on the current composition?
3: Well, on administrative law issues, I think the court's going to be generally conservative, and that is, you know, the size and scope of government power in some respects. On the other hand, on culturally uh, hot-button issues like abortion, or uh, uh, in the case of Justice Gorsuch, uh, saying that uh, laws against sex discrimination apply to uh, issues that really aren't about sex. <laughs> so, you know, you are going to have a radical view there. So uh, as you point out, uh, on certain issues, the court may be conservative. On other issues, the court may not be conservative. Or in the case on election issues, the court may be cowardly and refuse to do its job.
1: Yeah. And I think Justice Thomas pointed that out so brilliantly in uh, his recent dissent. And hopefully they'll decide to grow a backbone on that issue at at some very, very near future date. Um, But turning the topic now uh, to the Durham investigation. So You know, this is something that Americans, I think, are just so tired of being promised something. And you had uh, Bill Barr's DOJ. I mean, I remember his spokesperson being all over uh, mainstream media saying, you know, this report is going to come in the fall. Uh, It'll definitely come before the election. And I think, you know, you were one of the people who uh, definitely said, you know, I don't give that any sort of credence. It's not going to happen. Well, it didn't happen. You were right. But, um, you know, in the words of President Trump, where is Durham?
3: Yeah, and uh, we weren't even really talking about reports last year. We were just trying to get him to do his basic job, which was to uh, seriously investigate and, if necessary, prosecute folks. And there was no evidence that was taking place. Then we find out that uh, Mr. Durham was elevated to a special counsel by Attorney General Barr, who wanted to keep Durham going, at least to his credit, after, uh, and in a case President Trump wa- uh, lost, as, uh, as Washington tells us was the case. So, uh, you know, Durham and the Justice Department has failed the American people uh, in terms of assuring them that there be a, there's sufficient accountability for the most significant government scandal in recent American history, which was the weaponizing of our intelligence agencies and the FBI, et cetera, to target then candidate Trump and then President Trump uh, with illicit spying and uh, uh, criminal leaking. And no one's been held accountable of a senior uh, level for that. One official was prosecuted. Uh, one official was handed to handed to uh, Durham on a silver platter by the Inspector General, of the Justice Department, Mr. Kleinsmith, and he got no jail time. And you know, your listeners and your viewers probably don't know who Kleinsmith is, and that tells you anything you need to know and everything you need to know about what Durham hasn't been doing. Frankly, if Durham were doing his job. Obama would have been questioned, Biden would have been questioned, Hillary Clinton would have been questioned. These senior officials would have been questioned before grand juries, in the least, and that wasn't done. And so, you know, look, Jenna, I could write a report, and I and I say that only half jokingly. Uh, we expected Durham to do a serious criminal investigation, and then subsequently prosecutions. I didn't even, th- I don't even think he did the serious criminal investigation part yet.
1: So, where do you lay that blame then? I mean, was this something that was just part of the whole deep state swamp? Was this a failure of Bill Barr? Was this a failure uh, just of Durham, who completely uh, failed at his job? Or, you know, with the understanding of how the swamp works, I mean, where should the American people turn to say, okay, this is really the problem in Washington? I mean, there are many, but at least on this particular issue, where do you see uh, where the person either dropped the ball or specifically ignored the ball?
3: Well, there are two. Uh, you know, Attorney General Sessions blew it, and then Attorney General Barr blew it. And I think they uh, have given too much credence to the institutional, uh, uh, the institutional reliability of the Justice Department and the FBI. And so, uh, the FBI and the Justice Department essentially slow walked an investigation. Uh, it's pretty clear they didn't uh, broadly investigate the issues at hand, and. Uh, you know attorney general Barr and and Durham specifically, uh, you know we have to remember, in many ways, the Durham investigation didn't even look like a criminal investigation early on. It was an administrative review. I don't think there was any Justice Department had zero interest in vindicating the rights of President Trump. Barr didn't understand that. And um, I'm sure Barr, if he's quite if he were asked the questions today, is probably regretting the way that investigation turned out ultimately.
1: You would hope. I mean, you know, this is something where in in my short time here in D.C., I've been so disappointed to see how so many people uh, view all of these things as transactional rather than uh, truly in the interest of justice. I mean, I was raised through uh, my time in the prosecutor's office, uh, first just as a volunteer, I mean, literally in high school. And then, um, you know, moving through, I thought my career path would be as a prosecutor full time. But I was trained under people who taught me that justice is your client and wherever the fact-finding goes. That's what you pursue. And it seems like uh, to the American people who are sick and tired of waiting on this, that justice isn't anywhere here. It's all just about the politics. And so, you know, is there really a solution here? Because if President Trump's administration couldn't get justice out of the Justice Department and couldn't uh, show that, that these types of investigations are actually worthy and to get to the fact-finding stage? I mean, is there even really any hope that we're going to get to the truth of this eventually?
3: Well, we'll get more of the truth. Maybe some will get more facts out as a result of any investigation by Durham or any report. You know, when thinking about this, uh, this is it, it's the Republican approach on things. Oh, it was outrageous what they did to us. They politicized the Justice Department. They politicized the FBI. They victimized innocents. And so, what's the Republican response to that? Well, to investigate that is political. So, let's not do it. It's how they protected the IRS, it's how they protected Hillary Clinton, it's how they protected Obama. And forget about Durham investigating Obamagate. What about the Biden criminal investigation that was? squelched by the justice department and the FBI for years and during the campaign specifically.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, so not just where's Durham, a, it's where's a, Hunter?
3: <laughs> where's Hunter and um and why was he protected by not the Biden justice department but by the bar justice department? And he was protected. Again, it was pres- uh, excuse me, Attorney General Barr who didn't want to get the justice department involved in politics. Well, you know, When you choose not to investigate someone who violated the law, who otherwise might have been investigated because of their political connections, uh, uh, or or who who isn't going to be investigated because of their political uh, connections, that's political too. Yeah,
1: that is political. you you
3: You just have to do your job and the politics will be what it is. But yeah. you just do your job, and that's not what the Justice Department's been doing and for the last
1: And that reminds me of the Supreme Court during election integrity like we just talked about. They so did not want to be political that they ended up being political and not doing their job. We'll be right back with more.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
1: Welcome back to Just the Truth. And we're continuing the conversation, a lot to cover tonight, with my good friend Tom Fitton, who is the president of Judicial Watch. And I have to tell you, uh, Tom has been on the front lines fighting for the American people, fighting for truth, fighting for justice, not politics, uh, for years. And I so respect you, Tom, and wanna thank you for everything that you've done. And I have to tell her, the first time President Trump called me, um, at the end of our conversation, he was like, and, and you gotta call Tom Fitton. I love Tom, he's great you got to call him. And so I remember uh, calling you the first time, you know, just kind of out of the blue and saying, hey, so President Trump wanted me to talk to you because apparently you're the man. And that was absolutely not an an oversell. Um, I think that everything that you have done has been uh, just a phenomenal uh, fight for the American people. And so thank you for everything that you have done with Judicial Watch and are still doing.
3: Well thank you and uh, you know people uh, there were a lot of people who were trying to advocate for the rule of law uh, during the Trump administration and during prior administrations and uh, uh, you know Jenna, if uh, you know let's put it this way there were people who were trying to get the right thing done in the Trump administration and one of the things I witnessed there uh, is a lot of people who were obstructing, Uh, the president, and these aren't people that were deep staters, these were his own appointees. It was really disappointing
4: to see.
1: Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you, and I think that it's amazing how much he accomplished in spite of all of the uh, pushback and all of the people, even internally, who were working against him. And largely, that's with the establishment GOP. And, you know, Tom, as we're moving forward into 2022 and a possible uh, President Trump run again in 2024, uh, what's your thought on the future of the GOP? And kind of, I mean, the mainstream media wants to say that, you know, this is fractured. And, of course, they want to look for the division in the party anywhere that they can. But I see this really as... Uh, the difference between the truly MAGA crowd who understand that President Trump's vision was about America first, our founding principles, everything about true, genuine, conservative liberty and freedom, versus the uh, old establishment that are actually to the left on the political spectrum. They just want power. They want um, an aggregate, centralized power in Washington. They're more for uh, globalization. And then you have people like Liz Cheney who just have the personal beef against President Trump, and she's not willing to use her voice for the American people. So where Where do you see the future of the GOP party?
3: You know, I, uh, as the head of a C three, I don't do politics that much. But you know, generally speaking, my interpretation of the Republican fight isn't so much establishment versus non-establishment. It's the group who understands the crisis and those who are happy with the status quo, or you know, say that they're conservative and arguably are, uh, but don't want to aggressively address. The source of threats to our Republican form of government that have kind of increased and metastasized over the last few years. I mean, right now we have a border crisis, we have an election crisis, we have a a gas crisis, uh, we have a liberty crisis because of the COVID shutdowns and the suppression of our liberty rights under the guise of uh, curtailing COVID. And uh, there aren't. And then, of course, you have the rule of law crisis with respect to. Uh, the targeting of conservatives, the specific targeting of President Trump by the government, uh, the suppression of free speech. And there are too many Republican leaders, at least on the Hill, who kind of understand, by gosh, our republic is tottering. We need to do something serious about it and, and act as if there is a crisis as opposed to, oh, well, you know, maybe we can get this, uh, uh, you know, some more judges confirmed and that's all we need to do. Uh, which seemed to be the approach of the, for instance, the Republican Senate in the last three years. All they wanted to do was confirm judges and nothing else.
1: Right. And, and it does seem, um, I think that's a really wise uh, thing that you point out that it, we need to be more strategic as conservatives generally. I mean, even uh, people who don't necessarily um, identify with the Republican Party. I mean, people I'm thinking of, like Representative Thomas Massey, who, you know, I'm, I um, am a huge fan of his because I think that he just calls it constitutionally how he sees it. And I wish that more people would stand up like him, regardless of party affiliation. And so, strategically looking at uh, the next, you know, three and a half years of the Biden administration. From a Judicial Watch perspective, what are the top issues um, among all of those crises that you just defined that you see as uh, the issues that uh, the American people should focus on?
3: Well, these are the topics in my view. You have the border crisis was mitigated, but then it ended under President Trump. It's now, our border has collapsed under President Biden. Uh, we still have the threats to our core into constitutional liberties, the politicization of our law enforcement uh, that has people cowering in fear over free speech, uh, exercising their free speech rights. is isn't just big tech, it's the government coming after you over your objections to election integrity uh, concerns uh, or, the, or uh, your objections to the election contest in uh, November. Uh, and that segues into the next big topic, which is election security and reassuring people that their votes will count and they won't be negated by illicit votes or illicit counting Uh, to me that is a major challenge uh, for the conservative movement generally Uh, will they uh, be able to reassure americans of all stripes uh, that elections will be secure as opposed to uh, set up in a way that no one has confidence in the outcomes and if no one has confidence in the outcomes that no one will be voting in numbers sufficient to uh, 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 call ourselves (laughs) a republic uh, governed by the consent of the governed.
1: Right, and it, it seems like though the Democrats just don't even, and those you know those on the left who don't care about election integrity, uh, they they don't care if people get out and vote because they actually uh, don't want conservatives and Republicans to get out and vote, so they're just completely fine with that. But it also seems like there are a lot of uh, networks, you know, the media. There's a lot of uh, people in the Republican Party. There's a lot of people in private organizations that are cowering away from this issue, and I think you're. And I also agree with um, my good friend, Ken Paxton, our our friend, the Texas Attorney General, um, who is, by the way, full disclosure, honorary co-chairman on the Election Integrity Alliance that I'm the chairperson of, um, where we want to make sure that this issue is addressed for all Americans. Because without election integrity and, as you point out, Tom, without people having the confidence that truly the selection of the people is the person who ultimately is installed in that particular office whether it's president whether it's dog catcher uh, that matters and somehow Conservatives, by and large, are now hesitant to talk about this issue, and I think President Trump is right to continue with his uh, messaging strategy from 45 office, with um, you know, some of the other uh, surrogates that he has, with us, a lot of the other conservatives who are willing to stand up and talk about this. I think he's right to continue to keep this at the forefront.
3: Uh, yeah, and uh, certainly any other elected official ought to be keeping it at the forefront. Look, the left wants to be able to steal elections. That's why they uh, oppose election integrity measures, or at least that's a reasonable conclusion from the po- for, from their opposition to virtually every election integrity measure. And you know, those of us who we're we're not a Republican Party group, we're not a Democratic Party group, we're an independent group, and we're concerned about the rule of law. And I tell you, uh, it's it's the votes of Republicans and Democrats we want to vindicate, because for some, they don't care who you vote for. They just want an outcome. So it's all pretend to them as far as they're concerned. And so uh, certainly at the local level and in primary contests, do Democrats think that the Democrat machine in local communities and state communities, or even at the national level, won't abuse these systems like they're doing it against their conservative opposition? to their left opposition or their moderate opposition. But this is about incumbents abusing the powers uh, or or abusing the rules uh, to uh, obtain or retain power. And right now it's the Democratic left doing it in some respects, mostly. Sometimes Republicans do it. You saw that instance in North Carolina where you had an election result changed as a result of corruption. Uh, But the targets of this aren't always going to be Republicans and conservatives. It's also going to be Democrats on the inside. And, you know, Bernie Sanders was targeted repeatedly through this type of corrupt activism by uh, the uh, Democratic National Party. And, you know, to, to his discredit, he refused to do anything about it.
1: Yeah, and this seems to be, though, uh, the the short sightedness of a lot of the left's tactics, because even things like if you look at, um, you know, them celebrating uh, the masterpiece cake shop for um, you know being able to target Jack Phillips for declining to participate in an event that went against his sincerely held religious beliefs. And then ultimately, you know of course, the Supreme Court did the right thing in that case. But the leftists were so short-sighted because they just wanted to target the outcome they preferred without seeing how that could be used and would be used ultimately against them. And it's the same thing with election integrity. That's a great example of Bernie Sanders. And I love, Tom, how you said this is a Democrat versus Republican issue. And I don't like that Republicans continue to frame it that way because this needs to be simply and purely an American issue. Because we all should be on the same side that, listen, if if a candidate I don't prefer and didn't vote vote for gets uh, legitimately elected into office, I mean, I didn't vote for President Obama both times, but guess what? He was the president. And that's okay as long as it is a fair contest and the outcome is not rigged. The outcome is not what we need to be seeking with election integrity. The entire point is that it's full of integrity and that the people's voice is genuinely heard. And so how do you think that um, the messaging moving forward needs to be communicated so that people understand what you just expressed, that this is an independent, purely American opportunity? Uh,
3: and, And push voter ID. Republicans and Democrats support voter ID. Those who oppose voter ID are a minority of a minority in the Democratic Party. Uh, So Democrats and Republicans support voter ID. Ensure only eligible citizens can vote. I think most Americans would object to the idea that uh, we have a system that makes it easy for foreign nationals to vote, contrary to law, because there's little checks in place. Uh, Encourage people to vote in person. Uh, voting by mail is incompatible with election security and election integrity. Yeah.
1: And yeah, these are just really common sense things and we have to take a break here, but we're gonna be uh, back with more with my good friend, Tom Fitton, president of Judicial Watch here on Just The Truth.
0: Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
1: Continuing the conversation now with my good friend and American gladiator, Tom Fitton, who is the president of Judicial Watch. And we're talking about uh, election integrity and why that is such an important issue, the most important issue for Americans who truly understand what it means to live in a representative democracy, a constitutional republic. And Tom, it seems like uh, the, the whole... Uh, talk about election integrity was really the first uh, widespread instance of censorship by big tech with all of the, uh, the events after November 3rd, and ultimately that resulted in uh, the suspension of President Trump's at Real Donald Trump account on Twitter, uh, Facebook now currently has him locked out, and even you uh, had a video from Judicial Watch that you posted on your personal account, and now you're currently locked out. How long has it been and what happened?
3: Well, there were kind of like two convening issues. On Twitter, I had posted something about hydroxychloroquine being a safe drug. That's all I said. Yeah. Twitter yeah. had suggested they had previously found it to be not in violation of its rules. They told me I needed to take it down, and I'd be locked out. And I haven't taken it down. I'm still locked out. And they really haven't uh, uh, dealt with the issue in a forthright manner. And then secondly, uh, we had a video on YouTube, Judicial Watch did, that I uh, – that featured me talking about election security issues prior to the election that was taken down. And YouTube had taken the position that if you say that voter fraud could have a material impact on the elections, uh, we'll take your video down. Just complete partisan ideological censorship. And so the left had decided in, consult- in consultation with big tech, uh, their allies that uh, opposing the vote-by-mail, raising questions about vote-by-mail have been raised by experts like Judicial Watch and others on the other side of the political spectrum for years would be no longer permitted or otherwise suppressed or labeled as you know, disputed, as Twitter famously did. But we found out that this wasn't just a private operation. The state of California's uh, secretary of state's office had uh, coordinated and pressured the big tech companies, specifically in our case, uh, YouTube, to take down our YouTube video about not only election integrity, but about our success in California, where a federal lawsuit resulted in a settlement requiring uh, Los Angeles County to clean up one, up to 1.6 million names over there, off their rolls because they have been left on for, for forever and a day. So this was censorship in league with big government. It's not just big tech. It involves big government suppressing speech about questions about election integrity, which raises, as you know, as a constitutional lawyer, Jenna, much more significant legal issues than just Section 230.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when when you get the government involved, then for all of these people who are saying, well, the First Amendment doesn't apply because this is a private corporation, they can do what they want. With what you're discovering from California, this now uh, properly invokes the First Amendment very clearly. I mean, and I have some questions about whether big tech can just do whatever they want. And I think a lot of people do. I'm happy to see James O'Keefe and others, you know, Project Veritas uh, go after some of these big tech corporations, um, even in the private realm. But uh, this absolutely... Absolutely raises uh, First Amendment questions and uh, where are you at in terms of this sort of discovery process and has there been any action from Judicial Watch now taken in light of this?
3: Well we're still with in the I, I wouldn't call it discovery, it's the open records laws that we're using to figure out what went on and it wasn't just California. we had information that Iowa uh, successfully lobbied Facebook uh, to suppress information uh, from Judicial Watch that was critical of Iowa's uh, dirty election rolls and Iowa—that uh, secretary of state's office is controlled by a Republican. So you know it was no surprise to me that there became an issue in Georgia that was run by a Republican secretary of state on how they were running elections. In my experience, it doesn't matter to the party; it's the office. Mm. And when you push an office to do its job, no matter who's running it, you get blowback. And you saw that in California and in in Georgia with uh, the Republican Secretary of State there, and we saw it directly in Iowa with the Republican Secretary of State who started calling big tech to get them to take down material of us of ours that was uh, critical of them.
1: <laughs> that, I mean, and it's just mind boggling that Republicans would be, would collude, if we can you know use that word from the left, uh, to, with big tech to essentially get their outcome here. And that's what I found so shocking in the midst of the post-November 3rd election integrity effort that I was a part of with Team Trump Legal is that for uh, the four states that Rudy Giuliani and I went to and uh, talked to their legislatures. They were Republican-led. I mean, these are people who are supposedly conservatives that then you're meeting uh, this uh, this backlash and this uh, just cowardice from being willing to stand up for principles of conservatism just because uh, they're being asked to do something that, frankly, is uncomfortable for them. And I think for the state legislatures, they just didn't want that to be part of their job. They didn't know that. And uh, so for these secretaries of states, though, what's, what's your uh, opinion in why, even as Republicans or so-called conservatives, that this was their response that you might expect from someone who's more liberal or, or Democrat-leaning?
3: Well, for all the reasons, I mean, you saw, you saw it firsthand, Jenna, they couldn't take the political pressure. Uh, they bought into the left-wing narrative that an election that was uh, run illegally was still a valid election. And that's not true as a matter of law. And I think uh, uh, state legislatures didn't want to grapple with that because it was uh, politically uncomfortable. There weren't enough principal conservatives in those state legislatures, or at least uh, uh, principled rule of law individuals, because you don't have to be conservative to be uh, concerned about the rule of law. And then, secondly, you had the courts, uh, even more, imp- maybe even more importantly, completely obligate their duties and responsibilities to adjudicate this litigation. Uh, you know, they the thinking was, if you sue beforehand, it's too early. If You sue after the election, it's too late. That was the catch-22 the Trump team was put in. And as a result, none of these, in my view, none of these uh, allegations, certainly that the Trump campaign had made in its various lawsuits were fairly adjudicated or adjudicated at all, practically speaking, uh, by the courts. I mean, there was a significant case in Georgia that was completely ignored. Nevada, completely ignored. Pennsylvania, you never were allowed to get out of the starting gate, practically speaking. And so, you know, between those three states, Uh, You could have had a changed outcome if the courts had done their job. So, you know, when the president says the election was stolen, when you're counting votes that shouldn't have been counted under law, you know, we can argue over the semantics, but that's how elections are stolen.
1: Yeah. And and this is where I think his uh, his perspective of saying, you know, this isn't the big lie is actually on the Democrat side and saying that, you know, there was one in 64 case losses. I mean, that's just not true. And I love the way that you that you put that so succinctly of saying, you know, if you come. Uh, before the election, then it's too early. If you come after, then it's too late. And, you know, President Trump and the campaign was left with, well, then when can anyone sue? And if a candidate for that office has no standing, can't bring the case, then who can? And so it's this fundamental conflict and cowardice Uh, from the courts and then the political legislatures that don't want to deal with it. And that's the frustration, um, I think, that the American people see that justice was not accomplished because there was nothing that was actually heard on the merits. It was all this political bantering and it was all of this uh, sort of hot potato saying, we don't want to deal with it, we don't want to deal with it, we don't want to deal with it. And we're going to talk about this more when we come back with Tom Fitton and uh, really go into some of his ideas for some solutions moving forward. I know that the American people are focused on election integrity. President Trump still is on election integrity. This is the most important issue. We'll be right back.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
1: Welcome back to Just the Truth. And we're talking about election integrity in its many various forms that we absolutely have to address well before the 2022 midterms and, of course, before the 2024 presidential election. So joining me now to discuss some further developments is Richard Manning, the president of Americans for Limited Government. Thanks so much for joining me tonight, sir.
4: Thank you for having me, Jenny.
1: Absolutely. So um, so a couple of things here, you know, the John Lewis Act, we've uh, seen also S-1 uh, that is now started out as H.R. 1. So um, a couple of different items. And so where are we at um, with some of those issues uh, for, as in terms of an update?
4: Well, the good news is S-1 is in deep trouble in the Senate. Senator Manchin from West Virginia doesn't support it. Um, the bill actually was killed in the Rules Committee in nine to nine vote. Um, now there are lots of ways to resurrect it and bring it to the floor. HR1, it could be done as HR1, for instance. But right now, S1 is faces a really long haul to be to actually be voted on. The downside is, is what Senator Manchin has said as the alternative would be an embracing of the John Lewis Act. And what most people don't realize is that while that while that act sounds like it's something that'd be relatively benign, it's a you know civil rights and voting rights after all. What it actually does is it actually makes it so the Department of Justice has, takes over state elections, state election laws, takes over things as minute as moving a polling place, 10, you know, 10 yards down the street. Um, So the Department of Justice would have preclearance for any of those type of activities under the Lewis Act with, for states that had a history, some kind of history of uh, racial discrimination in voting. But that's a, racial discrimination voting, though, is described as being a, an allegation of ra- racial discrimination or the disparate impact where somebody looks at the church, looks at the It looks like not enough people of color voted in this election, and so I'm going to declare that there was a voting rights action without having to provide any proof other than looking at a voting roll. So this is really a thin read in terms of a way for the federal government to take over all state, local elections, and the laws that uh, dictate them, and to determine whether or not the, really what laws should be allowed to be had, and what not, what shouldn't. So in essence, it mm-hmm. is S one without a lot of the a lot of the stuff of partisan making the partisan FEC and changing some of the voter account, some of the foundational uh, funding laws. So yeah, yeah it's S one. It's S one.
1: So, so it's kind of S1 light in the sense that it's trying to achieve the same result. And I just see this, Rick, as uh, basically a pretext for then the federal government to go in and uh, do anything that it wants and to dictate to the states uh, what it, whatever they want in terms of maneuvering the election laws. And also, this is kind of flipping the whole idea of, um, of enforcement of law on its head, where they can then go, it seems like uh, then the DOJ would be able to just enterprise their own uh, ability to say, hey, here's a harm, here's a harm, and go out and investigate it, rather than the traditional method of someone actually complaining and saying, hey, I was harmed, and therefore there needs to be an investigation here. So it seems like on those two fronts, and probably more, um, this is just an opportunity to federalize state and local elections.
4: Well, it is. And what's worse is that Senator Manchin has said, that he would want to have this apply to all 50 states off the, from the jump, so it would not. We wouldn't even have to go through a process of determining that a state has has a history. It would automatically be presumed to be guilty, and hence any changes in election law by that state would be subject to clearance by the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. And remember, Jenna, and I know you know this, but I'm reminding viewers, that this is the same DOJ Civil Rights Division that didn't come in and deal with any of the irregularities in the in the 2020 election. In fact, tar- have targeted subsequently members, individual people on staff at DOJ's Civil Rights Division who wanted to go in and take a look at those violations. Um, and so they're actually targeting people who wanted to stand up for a fair election in 2020. And now we're going to trust them with determining what election laws should be in, K- in force in 2022 and, most importantly, 2024, which is when they're really focusing on making this happen.
1: Mm, and that, it seems like that's going to be the compromise for Mansion to say, well, I voted against S-1, but now you, know, you need to be with me. Uh, like Kristen Sinema and others um, of his party to say we'll compromise by now supporting the John Lewis Act but it also seems like the left's mentality is to just blanket label everything presumptively racist and then that's the key to just then and go uh, for any policy that they want to enforce and anyone pushing back on it well you must be a racist if you're against this I mean it's the same thing like the Equality Act it sounds great in theory but it's not at all about equality Um, it's you know something completely different than that and turning the whole idea of fundamental fairness on its head. So, where should uh, the organizations, um, you know, like your organization, Americans for Limited Government, uh, where is the fight now? If you see Mansion going in this direction, well, the
4: fight is to maintain the filibuster, and the fight is to keep uh, keep any Republicans from embracing this. Um, because the reality is, that every single one of their states will be put under this law. Every single one of their states will be presumed racist without having any proof. And the truth of the matter is the left has already said that we have systemic racism in America and that would apply to the the election laws themselves. And it would effectively negate all attempts to make it so we have voter security, where we know that ballots are, there's a chain of custody of ballots, where you have voter identification, and lastly, where we have a fair and honest counting of those votes. It would negate all of those laws put in place to do that and would replace it with a standard that was basically fluid, based upon the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division uh, whim at the time as to what should be acceptable, what should not be.
1: Wow. And, you know, in just um, about the last 30 seconds we have here, so if this is passed, I mean, worst case scenario, and it's challenged, with the current composition of uh, the Supreme Court with three of Trump's appointees, I know that, you know, they didn't do their job uh, with election integrity in the Texas versus Pennsylvania lawsuit, do you see uh, any merit to any judicial action that may occur?
4: I think there is merit to going after, because it does go after the basic uh, sovereignty of the states in this regard. But I will tell you, um, it's a tough road to hoe, and I never, ever, ever want to put myself in the hands of the Supreme Court when we should do the job of the legislative level. Let's in the Senate. Let's make sure no Republican support this thing.
1: Absolutely, so well said. Well, Richard Manning, thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to uh, more updates from you as we continue this path.